0: Thank you, Tim, for that uh, prayer of supplication. And thank you all for choosing to be here this morning to worship and to participate in this great privilege we have. I'm, I'm honored and humbled by your presence uh, to be here today. And I'm humbled by the privilege to be able to open up God's Word for us in this worship context this morning. And what I hold before you is not my subjective opinions or, or some thesis that I'm trying to promote it's just my uh, exposition of God's word that you hold in your hand whether in hard copy or electronic but the fact is I I thank you for being here and I pray that through the preaching of the word of God that that, uh, the Lord will draw you closer to him and if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ that the word with the spirit of God will move your heart towards Jesus if you are truly one that God has elected and is drawn to Christ and you will experience salvation the greatest experience that can ever happen on this side of eternity if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus is at the center of your life then I pray that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to revive you and to renew you in your relationship with the Lord so that you will be even closer. And so those are goals of preaching and our other preachers I'm sure would concur with that. I will invite you to go back to 1 John that's where we've been walking through God's word together. 1 John his, uh, John's first epistle and last week as we looked into uh, chapter 2 and then portion of chapter 3 of 1 John in the previous message, I pointed out to you, or I hope to, to uh, lift up to you what, what I consider to be the true believer's hope. The, the true believer's hope, a, a hope that, that is not universal amongst humanity. This is a hope that is divinely given and biblically authenticated. And, and spiritually experienced only by those who are true followers of Jesus Christ. And we talked about five of the sanctifying effects of this genuine disciple's hope. And what a joy, what a privilege to live in this world so chaotic and torn by sin and divisiveness and, and chaos and, 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 and uh, violence. And, and hopelessness sometimes, darkness, to live with the ray of the hope of God that lifts us above the dilemma of the world in which we find ourselves. So we talked about the true believer's hope. And so now I draw your attention back to chapter 3, and we'll be picking up in verse 4. And I want to focus on what I consider and I'll promote to you as the behavior of true believers. Believers. We've looked at the hope of true believers. Let's consider for a minute the, the behavior of those who are authentically followers of Christ. Now, for those of you that are just kind of tuning in to our series, what the Apostle John is attempting to do in the early church, the first century church, is to point out that not everybody who is in the fellowship of the church, claiming to be a Christian, is actually indeed a follower of Jesus Christ. They're imposters, they're fakes, they're Christian wannabes, they're posers, or whatever you want to call. You know, uh, and that was creating havoc in the, in the early church. I, I submit for your consideration today that in the 21st century, Satan still uses this very tool to, to, to de- derail the church and to distract the church and to divide the church. He has planted in the midst of the congregation, and there's no congregation, I don't care what denomination, that is exempt from this problem. The presence of fake Christians, those who claim to be followers of Christ, yet upon closer examination with the Word of God, actually are not. Jesus preached a a parable, taught a parable. We call it the the parable of of the wheat and the tares. How weeds grew up in the midst of of a wheat field. And tares, uh, a a particular plant there in Palestine in the first century, was a type of plant that looked amazingly like wheat in its early stages. And so there it was. It was growing up right up in the midst of, of all the wheat and creating a dilemma for the farmer. So Jesus understood even at that point that when his church would be established, that this problem would exist. Now, I don't mean we need to go on some type of a witch hunt. This is not a hate-motivated message. It's a love-oriented message. It's a message generated from the heart of God, first and foremost, to the people of God, His children, to encourage them and and to lead them and to help them to be, be effective as disciples of Jesus Christ. But also, I believe in love, God gives a warning to those who are trying to ride the fence be in the middle, be superficial, and not take a step of commitment to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, and they've comfortably settled themselves in the midst of some church family, God, out of mercy, out of grace, is showing them the truth in the Word of God. And so as we look at this today, the behavior of the true believer, beginning in chapter 3, verse 4, I want you to understand the manner in which we live and behave Says volumes about who we really are. Consider your behavior. In chapter three, verse four, uh, John says, "Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness." The law. I know sometimes we're in a uh, the era of grace, under a covenant of grace, and so many. New Testament Christians, you know, will oftentimes say, Don't talk to me about the law. I'm not under the law. So, you know, I don't have anything to do with the law. Ladies and gentlemen, the law is God. The law was given by God to Moses, to his people. And the law is simply the demonstration of the holiness and the characteristics of our holy God. The law was given so that sinful mankind could understand the nature of God. And so when he's saying here, whoever commits sin, listen, you need to realize, you are committing lawlessness. You're breaking the moral, spiritual law of God. Jesus had deep respect for the law in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. You may recall in that Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said in verse 17 of chapter 5 of Matthew. He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it. He says, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill the law of God. Now, we'll put your consciences to ease and just remind you that we're not... Hebrews, we're not Jews, we're not under the the theocracy uh, of Israel as it was in the Old Testament. We're not under the Mosaic laws and all the dietary restrictions and things like that. No, we're not under the Mosaic law. But ladies and gentlemen, we have before us the law of God, the word of God. And I assure you that every born again believer of Jesus Christ is under the moral standards of holy God. And you violate the law of God and you violate God. And so it's important. John is wanting them to see. Listen, if you're living in sin, you need to understand that you put yourself in in opposition to God. And there is a need to understand that. So our behavior should reflect a, 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 a commitment to avoid that which contradicts God's word. Is there anything in your life? that habitually and consistently contradicts the Word of God. Then, dear brother, dear sister, dear friend, I assure you, you're you're dangerously close to breaking God's law. So our behavior should not contradict God's Word. It should enforce, it should reflect God's Word. Disciples of Christ do not live in habitual lawlessness And sin, and that's what John is wanting them to see. Now, when John says, you know, do not sin, he's not saying that every born-again Christian is perfect and never sins. No, you need to understand, when he's talking about sin in this context, he's talking about those people who continually, habitually commit same sin over and over, and it's become a part of their lifestyle. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're living a life that reflects this kind of lawlessness, then you are breaking God's moral law. The false believers of John's day, as you you may recall in in chapter 1, when we looked at verse 8, John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. He says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him, God, a liar, and His word is not in us. There were those heretics Those imposters who were living in the midst of the church, and they were practicing a false sense of dualism. They believed that what we did in the body, this this physical body, had no connection with our spirit. Because God was only interested in our spirit, not what we did in these sinful, old, physical, materialistic bodies. So they could be sinning like the devil in their body but in their mind because they claimed that they had this higher esoteric knowledge hence the Gnostics they thought that they could do anything and it wouldn't be sin. And John is saying hold on for a second if you're practicing sin you are violating the law of God. You are making yourself out to be a liar because anybody that says oh look I never sinned Y'all might have some of those who show up at your family reunions, you know, those pious and perfected people who claim that they never sinned. But listen, John says, you're just a liar. And when you even promote that kind of silliness, he says, you're even trying to make God out to be a liar because God has said from the beginning to the end, hey man, you are sinners. You are sinners. You've got an infectious, deadly, spiritual disease call sin and everybody is subject to that and so true believers avoid that which contradicts god's word you know there are some today even associated with churches who seem to be of that old school called antinomianism in which they say that oh listen it doesn't matter what we do in this life and in this body because you know my spirit has been purged And that's all God's interested in. This whole body's going to stay here and rot. So I can sin. I can practice some of these public favorite sins that are going on out there in the world and get away with it and still be a, quote, Christian. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 12, Let not sin be in your mortal bodies that you obey it in its lust thereof, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves, Christians, he says, as as instruments of God, those who have been delivered from death. And he says, and yield your body, your parts of your body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. Don't let sin live in your body. Don't, have, don't give a place for sin in your life. It's what Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. But we, let's move on. As we look further and move further in chapter 3, we'll see that the behavior of the true believer also rejects those things that contradict the work of Christ. Jesus came into this world. He had a work to do. He had a mission to accomplish. And you know that. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son... That whoever would believe upon him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Look what John is saying, beginning in verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. And again, I want to qualify. John is saying, he, whoever abides in Christ does not habitually, continually practice sin whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him that's pretty strong john said if you claim to know the lord and you're living in continual sin unrepented sin he says i've got news for you you've not seen the lord you don't know the lord Now, isn't that a contrast to what John said in chapter 1, verse 1? As he opened up this wonderful epistle, look at what he says in verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word. you hear what John is saying? John says, listen, we know the Lord. Those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, Listen, we don't just know about Him. We know Him. We saw Him. We heard Him. We touched Him. We handled Him. Listen, we know Him. We've experienced Him. So now you go back to what John is saying in chapter 3, in verse 6, and he says, whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins lives in habitual sin John says I've got news for you you've not seen the Lord you don't know the Lord you just know about him and ladies and gentlemen there are a lot of people who are flying under the flag of Christianity today claiming to be Christians and I've got news for them according to the word of God if they'll examine their life and use the word of God like a spiritual x-ray God will say you don't know me You've never known me. You've never experienced me. And you're not one of mine. You're living a lie. Listen. Jesus came into this world on a mission. And the mission was to conquer the sin that held mankind in captivity and condemned his soul to eternal damnation. Jesus came on a mission that he knew that would ultimately take him to a hillside called Golgotha where he would hang as the precious son of God on an old rugged cross and shed his precious sinless blood for the payment for the sins of all who would believe upon him that they might experience. Forgiveness of their sins and fellowship with God and eternal life and the hope of heaven. And I got news for the devil and all the world's crowd. His was a mission accomplished. When he hung his head on that cross and he looked up towards heaven and he says, Into thy hands, Father, I commit my spirit. It is finished. How do we know? Because after his body lay in that tomb for three days, by the power and the grace of God, the Son of God walked out of that tomb, victorious over sin, victorious over death. Hallelujah. Mission accomplished. He came on a mission. Even John the Baptist, you may recall in John's gospel in chapter 1, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he saw Jesus walking towards him and his disciples, John looked up and he said to his disciples there in John chapter 1 verse 29, he says, pointing at Jesus, Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came on a divinely given unique mission that nobody in all of creation, in all of eternity could ever accomplish. And that was to conquer sin. And hallelujah, I stand before you as one who is redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to tell you that he accomplished that wonderful mission. Peter picked up on that. We walked through the the epistles of Peter, you may recall, a few months ago. But I'll take you back to 1 Peter chapter 2. First 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to what Peter says, for, this, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, talking about Christ, nor was guile found in his mouth, verse 23 who when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously look at verse 24 there in 1 Peter chapter 2 who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by those stripes by whose stripes you were healed Peter wanted the followers of Christ, he wanted the people in the churches to whom he was writing to understand very clearly that Jesus didn't just meander into this world and aimlessly float around teaching good thoughts. He came on a mission to reveal the Father, to reveal the love of God, to reveal the kingdom of God, and then at at that pivotal moment to die. For the sins of lost humanity, you and me included. Now you go back to chapter 3 and see what uh, John is saying there. He says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor know him. Look at verse 7. Little children. There's that term of endearment that John uses over and over characteristically in his letter. He says, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. John says, Listen, true believers behave in a righteous manner. Our righteousness reflects the righteousness of God. But on the other hand, if you're living in sin, unrepentant sin, understand that your very life, your very testimony is a contradiction, it is an affront to the mission of Christ. To live in unrighteousness and unrepented sin in the presence of Holy God, understanding the significance of the mission of Christ is to make a mockery of what the Son of God did on that cross. Serious business. As we look further in chapter 3, verse 8, John goes on in, in this Exposition, if you will, of the behavior of the true believer. He says, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And by the way, footnote, we know that the devil was a creation of God, just like all the other angels. He was a glorified or angel. He was a glorious, high-ranking angel we find in the Old Testament. And he sinned. His pride caused Lucifer to want to be exalted like God, and God cast him down. And all the angels who fell followed Lucifer in that rebellion, they were cast down. So when John is saying that he, the devil, sinned from the beginning, he's not talking about the day that God created him. He's talking about the moment that Satan, or Lucifer, as his name was then, that high-ranking angel, chose to rebel against God. And from that time, John is saying, from that moment, he's been a sinner. He's rebelled against God. He's disobeyed God. He's led a rebellion in heaven and he was cast out with a third of the angels the Bible tells us. But he's still leading that rebellion down here on earth. So, so he's saying, don't be amazed by the fact that, that the devil is in the business of sinning. He's been sinning from the day he fell from heaven. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So the, the behavior of the true believer reveals their true spiritual heritage. Their true spiritual heritage. They are, true believers are securely adopted into the family of God. If if your behavior reflects the righteousness and the holiness of God, there's great comfort to be found in the Word of God for you and me. Because over and over, the Scripture tells us, gives us before and after pictures. I don't think we can appreciate where we are now in Christ without going back and remembering where we were without Him. You know, I like going up home to visit with my dad to the old farm place, help him out with things. In fact, Lord willing, I'll probably scoot up there later today and spend the night and get his myriad of medicines lined up for him and those kind of chores that I do. I feel like a CVS pharmacist when I'm there. But anyway, I hope he doesn't overdose or something happens as a result of that. But, but I'm just saying, you know, going home and being with dad and, and fellowshipping him as the premier purpose of the visit but you know it's good to go back because when I drive past those old farm fields and I drive past those you know that uh, old tobacco barns and many of them are falling down and 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 you know and I I see the old house in which I was born I mean not many people can go back to the very room where you were actually brought into this world it's I wouldn't suggest you go on there. as falling down, but I could stand there and look in the window where my mom birthed me into this world. So I'm just saying, and I, and I looked in that house that had no running water and no central heat or air and, you know, had an outhouse and, and, and I could go on and on. But I'm just saying, you know, it's good to go back to your humble beginnings and, and, and just realize and appreciate where you came from. Listen, the Bible reminds us over and over. For instance, in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 13, listen how the Scriptures reminds us. He says, that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He, speaking of the Lord, has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Do you understand? We were once a part of the domain of darkness. I don't care how religious your family was or how saintly your parents were Let me tell you something according to the scriptures. We were a part of that dark domain in Ephesians chapter 1, you know the Apostle Paul tells us there in verse 3 He said blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him him in love having predestined us as as uh, uh sons to adoption by jesus christ to himself to the good pleasure of his will and then john uh, paul also reminds us that every one of us at one time we were under the power of satan we were children of the devil so let me take you back let me take you back to chapter three and verse eight those who are Christians, true believers of Jesus Christ, our behavior reveals their true spiritual heritage. Those who are followers of Christ, those who are engaged in actively in sin, unrepented sin. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian. Doesn't matter if your name is on the roll of a church. You can even hold a leadership position in a church. Your behavior speaks volumes about who you are and your spiritual heritage. And those who are children of the devil, just as Jesus pointed out in John's Gospel chapter 8, He was telling the Pharisees, here they were bragging about being children of Abraham, and Jesus confronted them on the spot and says, I'll tell you who your daddy is. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. He says, your daddy is the devil. You're acting just like him. So don't make any claims to being sons of God. But on the other hand, If our behavior reflects the righteousness and the holiness of God, I don't mean perfection, but consistently that righteousness and holiness, let me tell you something, it is very clear on your spiritual birth certificate who your father is. You're children of God. It's something to be enjoyed. That's something to be celebrated. We are securely adopted into the family of God. And persons who live in habitual sin... As Paul pointed out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, they're children of the devil. Well, as we move along, the behavior of true believers reflects the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I like the lesson that we engaged in in Christian Growth Group this morning, talking about the spiritual armor of God. Ladies and gentlemen, whether you realize it or not, if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you are engaged in warfare. Oh no, not talking about machine guns and tanks and things like that. We're talking about spiritual warfare. Paul said there in Ephesians in chapter 6, as you studied in Christian growth group, he says our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of evilness in heavenly places. Paul says you're at war, whether you realize it or not. But praise God! We're on the winning side! Because we have the power and the provisions of the Spirit of God available to us every day as children of God. And this wonderful presence of God's Holy Spirit that comes into the believer who truly repents of their sin, turns their back on their sins, and and genuinely professes faith in Jesus Christ and commits to follow Him obediently, obediently, daily, practicing the principles of his word, then praise God. You have more power to your access to you than you even know. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, our behavior should reflect this transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you're not the same person that you were before Jesus Christ came to your life. You understand that? You go back and read Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. They're a new creature. You're not the he says, you, the old he says, the old things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. Thanks to Calvary. We're not the people that we used to be. Thanks to the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been washed by His precious sinless blood and we have been adopted into His family. We've been filled by His Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives us new life. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. But God, because of His righteousness and His mercy, He made us alive together in Christ Jesus. We were dead, but now we're alive. That's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in you. There are people uh, that you know and I know walking around claiming to be Christians, but I got news for you. Just examine their life. Examine their behavior. And you'll find out they're deader than a doornail spiritually. Oh, they may act alive. They may be going through the motions of life, but spiritually they're dead. Because there's an absence of the Spirit of God in their life. And then the Holy Spirit not only imparts new life, the Holy Spirit implants spiritual fruit. The love and the joy and the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the the meekness and the self-control, faithfulness, Listen, you don't work that up. You don't go on some kind of a spiritual pilgrimage or chant, chants or burn incense and then bang, all of a sudden you're conjuring up all this love. And Let, let me tell you something, it's the fruit of the Spirit of God. The more you're filled with the Spirit of God and you're submitting to the Word of God. Let me tell you something. He is bearing forth this fruit. It naturally flows from you. Your family sees it and appreciates it. Your co-workers, your schoolmates, your neighbors, everybody you're around. Listen, whether you realize it or not, they're they're benefiting. They're they're picking from the tree of the fruit of the Spirit of God from your life. Ask them sometime. Do you love the love that's in me? No, don't do that. But if if somebody were to take them off to the side and ask them, is there something different about so-and-so than everybody else in the office or everybody else in the school, in the class, or everybody else in our group, they'd say, yeah, there's something definitely different about them. So the behavior of the true believer avoids that which contradicts God's Word, rejects that which contradicts the work of Christ, reveals their true heritage as children of God. This is the behavior, how they live, how they talk, how you act. It reflects the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You ever think about that? Do you ever really consciously stop and think about that? Let me ask you to bow your heads. And, and, and just in a moment, I'm going to ask Amy if she would to come on up to the piano and Pastor Mark be ready to come and lead us. And we'll, we'll, we'll honor Tim's request of finishing out Amazing Grace. But, and, and that's a wonderful way to, to do it because I'm going to tell you what, when it comes to living the Christian life, it's all about the grace of God. Number one, you couldn't even experience real life in Christ if it weren't for the grace of God. Number two, you can't continue to live faithfully in the Christian life except by the sustaining grace of God. So just with your heads bowed for a moment, let the Spirit of God do a checklist real quick in your life. I don't know what, what you do in your private life, but I promise you the Lord knows I don't but know that, or, or think that that what you profess with your lips about being a follower of Jesus Christ is, is not the truth. But I guarantee you, God knows. I, I can't follow you around every day and, 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 and in your social life, your private life, when you're on your computer see what you do that might contradict your professions of faith, but I guarantee you the Spirit of God doesn't miss a trick. He sees all and He knows all. So you might hide your secret life from family members, church members, even close Christian friends. Dear friend, i got news for you. You ain't hiding anything from the Lord. Pardon the English. Oh, listen, I may not know all that about you secretly or privately. But it's not me that you have to be concerned about. Because one day when you breathe your last breath and your heart, heart ceases to beat on this side of eternity, it's not me you're going to stand before I won't judge you. None of us can judge each other. But you understand, the one who died on that cross, who paid the price for the penalty of the sins of those who repent of their sins, you understand, he will sit on a great white throne. And if you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ, He'll say two fateful, absolutely, eternally devastating words. Maybe more than two. Depart from me. And your soul will be cast consciously, fully alive, fully alert into the fires of hell for eternity. There's a lot at stake In how we live our lives. Because it is our day to day testimony. Of who we really are.